You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Revitalize Our Cities Now, the podcast series for entrepreneurs, real estate investors, developers, and anyone interested in urban revitalization. Our host is David Michael, a real estate lawyer with the Lipson Nielsen Law Firm. One of his areas of expertise is urban revitalization. David's guests will include some of the difference makers involved in all aspects of urban revitalization throughout Michigan. You'll listen as experts discuss acquiring land, redevelopment incentives, real estate and nonprofit law, immigration and economic redevelopment, private equity, venture capital, and more. Thanks for joining us. And here's your host, David Michael. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Michael, and I'm here today with Joe Mara and Ali Nuru Yassin. Joe is a tree surgeon, and he is a community leader, and he's here, he's here to talk about some of the projects that he has been developing with Creating Space Detroit and also his commercial endeavors. Ali Nuru is a personal risk manager and a poet. Joe, I'm going to start talking with you. Tell me a little bit about Creating Space Detroit. What is it? Who founded it? When did you start it? Things like that. Well, Creating Space Detroit is a small nonprofit. I'm one of three co-founders. I live in the Bagley neighborhood in Detroit, uh, right opposite Mary Grove College, just north of Six Mile there. And my uh, one of my other co-founders just lives one block away from me on Cherry Lawn Street. She's basically a neighbor around the corner. And the third co-founder is a lady, Vicky, who has roots in Metro Detroit but lives in Colorado but is still – she owns quite a few – I don't know about quite a few but some rental properties in the Bagley neighborhood. So she has a you know an interest in, in seeing it revive and prosper however you would you know term what's going on there now. And – the reason why we founded the nonprofit, I, I've been living there about four years now, and I just had driven by and walked by a lot, you know, literally to, right, right around the corner from me for a few months when I first moved in. It was full of garbage and mattresses and tree branches and, and the type of stuff that people put on empty lots in Detroit. And the street drain was flooded and it was plugged and all that. I just kind of got tired of seeing. I started cleaning up little by little, and I – then also notice the more I got to know the neighborhood, we have 5,000 residences, I think 5,000 housing units, some are a few fewer houses, some are two family, and there's not a single green space or park or swing set in Bagley, which was surprising to me because it's a fairly middle-class neighborhood basically. And I just kind of wondered why and I didn't People just sort of said that's the way it is or you can go to the rec center. But the rec center, you need to get in the car and drive. It, it's, you know, it's far away. For most people, it's far away if you don't have a car and if you do have a car, you know. So, Well, let me ask yeah. you, how how big would you describe uh, the Bagley neighborhood as being, maybe blocks by blocks? How I mean, I'm blocks? not good. It goes from six miles to outer drive. So that's six to seven and past that. So it's over a mile from north to south. And it goes from Wyoming to Livernois, which is probably another mile. I'm not real sure of the east-west distance, but it's uh, – I've heard 4,500 houses, 5,000 depending on, again, how you're counting housing units. But a lot of people, a lot of houses, a lot of people, some empty lots, not too many, Z- zero playgrounds, zero rec centers, zero, not just not many, none. Are there a lot of uh, children in the neighborhoods? Oh yeah, there's a, there's a good mix of people, a lot of retired people, a lot of kind of blue-collar – People, a lot of families, a lot of grandmothers with grandkids who come over. There's this real good mix of everybody there, all age groups, and yeah. And so, the purpose behind creating Space Detroit was what? Well, the I looked into uh, the whole. There's a policy. The Detroit Land Bank has a policy. If you want to buy what they call a side lot, you need to live next door to it. And I didn't right. live next door to it, so I couldn't buy it. So then I approached the Bagley Community Council, which is an established neighborhood nonprofit. And for one reason or another, and I'll leave it at that, they supported the idea. But for one reason or another, after a year or a year and a half, it didn't get done. So I, you know, talked to the president. I said, look, I said, I don't care how this gets done under whose name. I just 
just want a swing set. I just want a little park here. I live around the corner. There's so many kids. There's people smashing windows. Just give them something to do. And she was very supportive of, of – she kind of mentioned there was internal politics being involved as to why it wasn't going forward and also talked about the land bank. So the long and the short of it was I at this point was talking to Vicki. Samoy had moved into the neighborhood. She's been in Detroit her entire life, but she was on the other side of Wyoming. But she had moved into the Bagley neighborhood. We got to know each other at a community meeting and said, look, let's just form our own nonprofit because the other way, if you don't live next to a lot, you need to be a, a nonprofit, a 501c3 and be certified by either your district council person or your district manager as a community a certified community partner like you're good, doing good things not bad things in the neighborhood. Well let's let's talk about uh that structure just for a little bit. Uh you mentioned uh district council person and district manager. Explain what those are. Well, district managers are they correspond to district council seats but the council people in Detroit are elected positions. We have You're talking about the city council. City council people, right. There's two at-large members and one for each district. I think there's seven districts. I think we have nine altogether. And there's a district manager that is appointed – and a deputy district manager that are appointed by the mayor. They answer directly to the mayor. They're, they don't go through any – he can hire and fire at will. And it's sort of, I guess – I'm not sure what the thinking is behind, but they act as a conduit where people can talk – at least in theory, directly with the mayor and there's some contact w- between the mayor and the population without having to go through a city council person. And I think it's not a bad idea. It gives you another way of, of talking to somebody in power. Oh, I understand. That yeah. makes a lot of sense, actually. You have an elected official who may have a political agenda. Right. Um, well, I suppose every politician has a political agenda just by definition, right? But then you have somebody else, some uh, – some, Years in that district that report directly to the mayor, and right. and presumably that uh, that corresponds to, uh, you know the the infrastructure behind any um, executive office, right? You have people who serve at the uh, the pleasure of the electorate, and then you have people who serve at the dis- at the pleasure of the executive. Sure, I I think, it, but that's how it is. So you need you need the approval like a letter of support from one or the other of those two people plus a 501c3 status and then you can apply to, to to the Detroit Land Bank and under current rules you can buy up to nine properties and you don't have to live next to any of them so that's what we did we formed Vicky did this she's very good with the you know that that whole bureaucratic side of things which which I'm definitely not and she you know got our 501c3 status we applied the councilman signed off on it and we were able to buy two two the two lots that i'd been you know trying to take care of initially alone and then with the samoy and and you know neighbors chipped in as they got used to seeing me there essentially where did you get the funds to uh to buy the property well that was it was it didn't take much it was a 100 dollars each or so the initial thing was a couple hundred dollars is all it all it took to get the uh yeah, and ever since then we've been raising money largely, Vicky, because that's that's her world. She she's good at all that stuff. I'm not. I'm not on social media. I don't know really how to raise money. You know, whatever I put in some of my own. You know, and, and, and because it's a five hundred C three organization but, that owns it, there are no property taxes to pay. Probably not. I mean, they're so negligible in terms of a lot. In any event, I don't. I, I don't know. I think there's. You have to be established for a certain amount of years. We're only two years old. I'm not really sure about that. She also takes care of that. We've just been able to acquire the empty house next door to it. We, there were four empty houses in a row next to these two empty lots. It's a tough. It's a rough block there on, on North Lawn Street. And well, well, part of it too, and and I'll just I'll, I'll say this as a lawyer, as a real estate lawyer. Um, Part of the requirement for the city of Detroit, well, it's actually a state law for tax-exempt status, uh, you need to the, – the nonprofit organization, in order to be tax-exempt, needs to occupy, quote-unquote, the property. And occupy under the statute can mean different things. For example, you certainly occupy the property if you have a, a, a your, your headquarters on that property and you operate your um, nonprofit organization out of that building. But what about a parking lot? Things like that. Um, the city of Detroit, the, the locality, the taxing, the local taxing authority has a lot to say about that. And in Detroit, if you have a parking lot, the p- parking lot needs to be, and these, 
regulations are actually kind of vague. One of the things about uh, dealing with the city of Detroit, I've dealt with the, the assessor's office, and they tell me for a parking lot, what you need is some sort of signage. But I've talked to engineers and surveyors and other people involved in this, and, and they say what Detroit is really looking for is a, a well-maintained, well-repaired asphalt surface or concrete surface. It should be striped. And definitely, the city of Detroit will tell you this, it, it needs signage that that makes it clear that this is uh, this is owned by and occupied by and for the use of the nonprofit organization. So it sounds like Vicky's the one who's in tune with those requirements. Sure. And at this point, as I said, it's almost negligible. The house taxes, I know this year, they, it isn't, the house is not occupied. We were donated, we had got the house next door to, to these two lots donated to us. They were owned by some out of state real investment, real estate investment group in Washington state. And they, they donated the house. And I know we're paying property taxes on this year because we're not occupying the house. It's still boarded up. We're hopefully going to get a roof on it in the next week and we're going to slowly raising funds. It needs a total rehab. It's been empty 10 years or so. Let me ask you this question, though. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I've heard that you have a nonprofit. But two two important questions for me as someone who visits neighborhoods and inspects properties for insurance purposes. So you have uh, an open lot that's going to become a park. But what is your goal for your nonprofit? How do you define success? I define success for the nonprofit a little bit differently than most people would. My my definition for success for our group, and, and Vicky and Samoy might hate me for this, would be if we were able to go out of business in a few years. And the reason why I say that is that the only reason why we exist and many, many of the nonprofits that I see in the city of Detroit exist is because there's a there is a dysfunction. There's a dysfunction in the society that the community, the neighborhood, something's not working right. And and the whether the civic institutions, the volunteers, the neighbors, things that people used to do when we all were growing up are simply not do- being done anymore. And now you've got to create these. I consider these nonprofits like artificial mechanisms to try to do something that should be happening organically and spontaneously without needing a formal structure and a tax exempt status. So I see the growth of the nonprofits. In two ways, one is that at some point it's a it's a it's a good sign that people are caring enough, but it's bad that they have to. And, and I see the fact that they're growing and expanding, and people are talking about careers and community development. I see that as a bad sign that that we've we've accepted the fact that the community neighborhood is going to continue to decline, and we're going to need more and more resources to do something that in a healthy neighborhood, state, community, city, whatever would would be happening by itself. Without, I, I grew up in North Jersey. I did all the same things I'm doing here. I literally never had any idea there was a nonprofit. I didn't know that that existed apart from the, you know, like the the March of Dimes at that level, Red Cross, things like that. I had no idea what community, never heard it. We did all the same things. So, Alan, you you asked Joe for his definition of success, and it sounds like what he's hoping is the, and Joe, tell me whether this is a fair uh, characterization of, of what you just explained. You think the city itself should actually take responsibility for a green space like that? No, definitely not the city. No, I would hope to see it at a much more local level than that. The city is, is overwhelmed. Even the best funded cities are overwhelmed. And even when you, with city oversight comes a whole bunch of rules that I don't think are necessarily going to reflect the neighborhood and what's needed, what's wanted, what's not. Well, then who would own it? The, the neighborhood. The, 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 the neighborhood space. I mean, the, the actual ownership to me is, is, is not the, is not all that important. I mean, that I know you're a lawyer and that's probably like super important to you. I don't think in terms of that. I think in terms of who, who wants to, whoever would use it would own it. And I look at things like that. The actual title could stay in the, in the nonprofit could revert to the city of Detroit. But I would hope to see that those, the sort of activities that we're doing, the sort of things would, would be arranged spontaneously by neighbors, the block clubs at the long, I'm a, I've only been in Detroit since 2011. But people, you know, the longtime residents tell me about how the block clubs used to do this, the block clubs used to do that. The, the, there was always a one or two ladies on the street. You always seemed to be – used to be ladies like, who would kind of keep order, you know. And there was different things. It was Santa Claus braids. It was all sorts of things that would just happen without having a structure. And, it, you know, people would look out for each other's children on the way to school. And it just seems like they were 
I don't know, these were the good old days, but they were better old days, you know, than, than kind of some of the stuff going on now. And so I, I just see that the, 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 the idea that you need a nonprofit to do this is disheartening to me because it seems that we've accepted defeat at some level. And well, I, I don't certainly. Joe, Joe I, don't, I don't think, I don't think defeat is there. And I'll tell you the reason why. I'll give you two reasons. Uh, right now, what you're doing is what we call the three Ps. And the three Ps is public-private partnerships. So even though you're a nonprofit, you're a private entity, and you are developing a sense of community. And the sense of community comes from a strong family. And once you have a strong family and neighborhood, you have strong neighborhoods. And once you have strong neighborhoods, that's when the moms that you're talking about have the block party, have the Christmas party. There is a continuation of expectations. And again, for me, driving by a neighborhood and doing property inspections and looking at properties, I can drive by four homes. They look great. I get to the fifth home and I think World War Three just happened. Sure. Okay. And, and this is in, in, in a lot, lot of parts of the city. And, and, I, and I go by, but I am very, very hopeful that your actions, your energy, and your conversations will start to change people and bring people together. Because once you have that cooperation and once you have an end goal together, you will see that people actually become people and they start to take care of stuff. And and, and that's that's a good thing. I think it's an excellent thing and I, I agree. It's just not me. It's us. And so I don't – whenever – I don't know. My experience with organizations is that they, at the beginning, they they tend to serve a, a, a purpose. The more they grow, the more useless they become because you involve you, you just seem they seem to grow to the point where the purpose is to grow and to more to grow more and more and more, and then we forget the original purpose of the organization. Our organization is just to get a couple lots, get a playground. So I'll be happy if that happens, and if the enough neighbors get involved, everyone's you know verbally supportive. But and we have some are cutting grass and mowing this, and hopefully when the the house opens that we're going to have as a community center, it's going to serve as a you know a base for a community patrol and classes and after school and all sorts of things. There's no shortage of great ideas, but we need a bathroom. So I'm a very practical sort of person. We need a bathroom for if you're in the playground, you need a place to go. You need to go to the bathroom. You need, need to you know people want to do cooking class. They want to. So I just don't want to. I don't like to think that this needs to grow. In other words. Because that means we're getting more and more dysfunctional. That, that's just how I know it's a different. Let, let me ask you a question. How how long has it been since you acquired the property? Since the uh, the house, just a few months. That was in October, November of two thousand eighteen. The lots. Year or so before then, I'm not really sure. Maybe a year and a half, eighteen months ago, something like that. Do you have a uh, a, a time frame um, planned out for the development, or does a lot of that depend on um, income? Oh, it all depends on income, basically. Yeah, we've got like a path. We have got a basic shelter up. I've got some some reclaimed. Uh, I don't know what the playscape, uh, the school down on Puritan. It was the Fitz, Ella Fitzgerald School got a grant to go replace their their uh, playground playground equipment, whatever. It, you know, it's fairly expensive. It's commercial grade playground equipment. I, I dug that up myself. It took me five days. I've been storing that in one of my buildings. I'm hoping to have that installed this year at some point, spring or summer. We have a little bit of money, depending on finding someone who will put up with us, and essentially because we're not that organ. You know, it's you got a whole stack of old playground equipment. We got to put together the puzzle and, and stick it in the ground. But I'm hoping that will be done, you know, by the the end of the summer, certainly. And the house, we have money for the roof. The roof, I talked to the roofer today. I'm hoping, again, things change. But in a week or two, we should have a new roof on the house. And then to rehab the house to where you can walk in and there's a functioning kitchen bathroom, it needs total rehab. So we need between our numbers from a very low number of 50, but many more people say $75,000. Alan, are you thinking about what I'm thinking about in terms of risk? Yes, I am thinking about risk because um, you're rehabbing a building and investing capital. So that's, again, source of funds. And we want to make sure that after you get everything done, will it become functional and will you start to recoup your investment? Because at the end of the day, it's still valuation. At the end of the day, you still have to make sure that funds are functioning to recoup your investment. Uh, and, and, and cash flow is king. Um, at the at the very bottom of the uh, Great Depression in Detroit, there were homes for sale for a dollar, but the back taxes were a lot. Nobody bought the properties. You're ahead in the sense that you have a nonprofit organization. Uh, you're struggling on the operation side, but you have a goal. 
by the end of the summer, you will have one structure fully standing, perhaps fully rehabbed if you're able to secure financing. What's next? What, what what next would be to turn it over to the people who have we've held a series of community meetings and a lot of it's informal. I'm taking out the trash. I'm, I'm I walk around. The, I have a young daughter born here, born in Detroit, and we walk around the city. You know, I walk around the neighborhood, so I'm talking with people constantly. And, and what would you like to see, sort of thing? And we also have formal sit down meetings in the local coffee shops. And there's been, I mean, a list of people who want to use the building. That's there's not enough space if we had it rehabbed. So, and my goal, my personal goal is to soon as I'm just trying to get the lights on and then I'm, I'm out of here. I mean, not that I'm out of here, but I'll help you, you know, if the roof leaks, I'm going to go find a roofer sort of thing, but let people in the community guide. It's, it's, it's ours, not mine at all. Not Samoy's, not Vicky's. We don't see it that way at all. We literally want to turn it over to people. You know, we're going to keep a, be, be, provide guidance and financial, legal insurance, all that sort of stuff. But it's not like we're, I'm not doing any programming there. I have no plans to, I have no desire to, none at all. There's so many people who live there, have been there, want to tell their stories, want to hold their programs, want to have their birthday parties, whatever. And that's what it's there for. It's for us, not absolutely not for me or for you know the three of us. Sure. And that's what both you and Alan were talking about. You want to develop a community. You want to develop a neighborhood. You want to develop a family, and then people will take care of that. But I was happy to hear you mention something about insurance there because as a, as a real estate lawyer, or as a, as a lawyer anyway – uh, one of the things that I thought about when you talked about recreation on the property is premises liability. And, you know, if, if it were the city, there would be, uh, there'd be one way of looking at that and there'd be some issues of uh, sovereign immunity. But when things are not owned by the government, you definitely have uh, premises liability exposure and you want to have insurance for that. Um, so, so I'm glad to hear that uh, that all of this stuff has been considered. Vicky, in your Vicky organization. has gotten this insurance. It's very cheap. I tend to look at what some people look at what bad things might happen. I look at what good things might happen in the space. It's it, it, we're both looking at the same thing from a different perspective. You're defining risk in its purest form. You know, we're we're so taught to see risk or the cost of insurance as a price, as an expense. But the flip side of insurance is the positive outcome. And when you start talking about, talk about the positive outcome, you talk about investments. And what you're doing is actually you're investing in the community. What you're doing is you're creating an, uh, a community that will have a perpetuity of goodness, happiness, joy, and memories as if you were a child of that community. That's a difficult number to quantify, but that's the positive outlook that you have. And that's great. And I agree with Alan that, that insurance – Various insurance products, insurance products to fit the situation are an inescapable and essential part of doing any kind of business that involves the public or, or, or that involves real property. But yeah, you you do that. You 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 cover your bases. You you do your basic due diligence. Then you go on with life because life is not risk free. Right. It's it's okay, not so, something that everybody needs to be thinking right. about. If but you, somebody needs. Somebody to. does. But if you what if what if what if you can stay in your basement and never leave because you're afraid of getting killed by whatever happens. And so I I don't think that way. I look at the opposite. I say what might good what good might happen if I walk out the door today, make a left turn and keep going. <laughs> not what bad might happen. And that I, I think it's just as valid a perspective. I definitely am not a lawyer. Nor an insurance person, nor do I think like you know you guys do. I just look at it a different way. Yeah, right. But it sounds like you have a partner who does think. Oh, that absolutely. Way. And both, thank, thank both God of you, for Vicky. Sure, <laughs> both of you are essential because it would sure. be a shame. Absolutely. It, it, for want of insurance, you could lose that experience, that community resource that that you're building. So anyway. Um, Joe, I also wanted to um, uh, ask you whether you have um, a model for um, acquiring the funding and the financing for your plans. I, I mean, I hate to keep leaning on Vicky and Samoy here, but we've they largely have put together, and there's a Kresge grant, a Kipti grant that we've applied for. We made it into this final second round. I think there only are two rounds. They pre-select. We've made it into that. I guess we'll hear in a couple of months. I think we have a pretty strong application based on, you know, a lot of letters of, of support from, from, you know, local leaders, nonprofit leaders, residents, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think we're doing, I know we're doing a good thing. I don't think we're doing a good thing. I know we're doing a good thing. So we're hopeful to get that. 
but we're not relying on that. We're going we're going to make it happen one way or the other. And if it happens in a, a big chunk grant, if we get fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars from Kresge, it's going to happen this year. And if not, it's going to happen slowly, incrementally. But it's still going to happen. I don't think. Again, in terms of nonprofits, I never didn't know that they existed for this sort of thing. We built a playground back in in, in West Milford, where I'm from. We built it a weekend, and. I never thought about it. I thought everybody did it this way. They, they, I don't know who donated the land. I'm not still to this day. I don't know where the land came from. But the call went out to the excavators, the local. The, we had 10 of them. You know, all the guys put septic tanks and we didn't have sewer systems back there. There was carpenters. There was tree guy, whatever. We all got together and, and one weekend the play, there was a brand huge playground, massive playground built. It had zero cost to the to the municipality. And I thought our firemen were volunteer firemen. When when the tree fell in the parking lot, I'd chip it up. They'd, hey, Joe, a tree fell down. Can you help us out with this? And when a barn caught fire, we called the firemen. So that's how we operated. The animal shelter needed help to give make a phone call. There's five guys there. So I'm used to doing it. I'm just not used to doing it with the nonprofit. This is actually a slow process for me to have to kind of go through and fill out forms and mail in stuff and all that and and plead your case. I'm not – I'm used to – the, the the people already being up to the task, and I grew up in a middle class blue collar, you know, little rural place in New Jersey, and everybody just pitched in. There was no fanfare, there was no ribbon cutting, there was no podcast. It was just did it. It was just a way of life, you know. So action, action, sure. So you mentioned the Kresge Foundation. You also mentioned another organization uh, from which you're seeking a grant. Well, that's the. It was the one we just applied for was a Kresge. It's called Kip D, and I don't know. D is for Detroit. I'm not sure what Kresge Innovative Projects or pro, I'm not really sure what it stands for, honestly. But it has to do, and that's the the most recent one. I know Vicky files all of these papers. She does all of this, but she said she's going to do some smaller ones. That that one, the the, the Kip D, they do give out up to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So if we got anything close to that, we would be, you know, we'd be done. You know, we we don't need we don't we don't need that much to 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 even with programming and paying every everybody and everything, we don't we wouldn't need that much. So yeah, if we got that, would be uh, it would be great. But if not, we're still forging ahead. Like we're we're getting a roof put on. We raised the money for the roof, and we're going to get a roof, you know, within a week or two. That sounds great. I'm excited for you. Now you had also told me that you have some experience in. Uh, trying to get a commercial endeavor going on in the city of Detroit. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Well, back in 2015, I was driving. My father went to the University of Detroit in the 1940s. He was he went to their engineering school and all that. And and when I moved here for a variety of reasons, I was driving through the neighborhood. I was trying to see. I, I don't know what was left. I don't really remember what my father said. He died quite some time ago. But the I was just trying to see what was around. You know what what it looked like around the U of D. And I was driving down Six Mile and I saw a strip of buildings with a for sale sign. So I I said, this is crazy that these they're buildings. I mean, I'm I'm talking five six blocks from University of Detroit. There's almost no businesses open, which is astounding to me. And you go another five six blocks, you're at Marygrove. And I've been fortunate enough to, to travel widely. I've been 35, 40 countries, maybe more, I don't know. And I have never seen that anyplace else in the world. What, what haven't you seen? Empty commercial spaces next to major universities. It doesn't exist. As far as I know, in the 40 countries I've been to, it simply doesn't exist. They're booming, thriving. There's all sorts of stuff going on. There's activity. There's students. There's all the ancillary services that people, there's the bars, the cafes, the this, the whatever goes along with the university. And then plus it's on the edge of, uh, you know, a blue collar neighborhood, what I call blue collar. I don't know. My, my neighbors are, I got a sheriff, a plumbing and heating guy, some retired people, a preacher, me. There's a, you know, that's. We're in a supposedly a good neighborhood, but there's no commercial. There's nothing, nothing. We got finally got a coffee shop open. Everything else is liquor stores or churches. Sadly, you're describing the situation in a number of Michigan uh, cities, Detroit, but also Flint. Uh, there was a time it's getting a little better, but very slowly. Um, Flint has the University of Michigan there. Um, and it has uh, the law enforcement and court complex. And then it's kind of hard times uh, for for quite a, a, a space around there. Also, that's kind of the story in Saginaw and some other places in Michigan, uh, Pontiac, uh, someplace more uh, closer to home. But these were all communities that uh, their downtown areas were once very vibrant. And then 
for example, in Flint, there is the uh, you know, car companies pulled out. Um, things like that will devastate a community. So we were left with the legacy of developed commercial areas that just aren't supported anymore. And that's why we're even talking about urban revitalization in sure. the first place, because it is an opportunity, as you point out. Well, I, I just, I'm, I, I'm still to this day, I, I don't quite get it, but I understand that the, the economy changes and all that. But, but part of my perspective is next to university that there's a certain amount of students who have, I don't know if they're affluent or not, but there's a certain amount of economic, economic activity going on four blocks away. And whatever they're doing over there, they're not spending their money locally. They're just not. They're either going north of 8 Mile or doing it on campus or not spending money. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. But so that that was a puzzlement to me. And the other thing is just from my travels, I've just seen that, that, that just normally these are thriving areas. So I first called up the, the broker and said, hey, I want to go buy this place. And it was under contract. And I had to offer them more money than to break the contract. They did. I mean, this is you know true story. They were they wanted more money. They said, well, if we're going to go – we're going to go talk to – it's already under contract. So I had to offer them more money, money I didn't have to go buy this place. I still owe my family money for it. But I said, this is crazy. This is this is, this is makes no sense to me. There's so much opportunity here, but not just – I mean financially, but also just in terms of – it's not like this is a deserted zone. This is a highly populated area and there's nothing going on and why not? It's not like people don't have needs. People are born. They're, they're, they go to proms. They die. They eat. They, 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 they shop. But they're just not doing it here. And so my question, which I'm still kind of asking, but now I know a little bit more about it, is why not? What's, what, are the, what are the roadblocks? Why are there no businesses open here? And that's how I, I bought the property first because I'm a fairly impulsive kind of person. And then I started asking why. And that's, you know. So you have property. You have commercial space. And the good question is why? Why do people not shop around a college campus? Why do people not spend time around there? And I've driven past those campuses. Um, and I'll tell you the answer that I see it. It's a change in thinking. And the change in thinking begins with you, begins with me, and it begins with David. But again, it's a sense of community. So you're asking the questions, this is good, and be prepared for the answers. And when people want to go and shop, they don't think of shopping in that neighborhood. So what do you do to create something that's unique in that neighborhood that reflects the colleges, that embraces the colleges, and starts to grow and possibly thrive? That would be my recommendation. But even if they want to, there's nothing open. I mean, they cannot shop in the neighborhood. It's not like there are businesses that aren't supported. There are no businesses. I mean, there's literally liquor stores, church, liquor store, every whatever the, the, the zoning requirement is. I think it's a thousand feet. We got one on Santa Rosa. We got one on San Juan. We got one on Santa Barbara. And then in front of Marygrove, for some reason, there's no liquor stores. And I don't know what happened there. I know the hardware store used to be one. There's one there on Pennington. But it's liquor stores and then interspersed with churches. So people are desperate. I mean, and, and no no disrespect to anybody with a religion, but if you've got church, liquor store, church, liquor store, there's a theme here. There's a theme. People are seeing, seeking relief in different areas, but they're seeking relief. And and, and, and that's what I'm fascinated by. And, and why are there not no business? Because the, the, human beings – are entrepreneurs. They're industrious in general. I don't, I don't care how beat down you. I don't care if the auto industry folded up 50 years ago and there's no. I've been in areas. I've been in, in, in the, the Palestinian camps in, in, in Lebanon. I've been in the slums of Cairo. I've been in Mumbai in India. I, my wife is Kenyan. I've been to places which have a tiny fraction of 1% of the resources that are available in Detroit, and they are thriving economically. I'm not saying they're living well, but in terms of the amount of economic activity, visible commercial activity is multiples, hundreds of times more that's going on here. So my question still to this day is why? And I, I, I know some of the answers now, I, but don't have all the answers, but it's not, it's not necess this is not a necessary outcome. You know, Ford closes up, GM lays off people. Whoop, there goes six mile, there goes seven mile, there goes state fair. We're done. No. So you're just you're surprised that people don't just rush in to fill the void, in a sense. But I mean, my my wife is is is, is fond of saying she's oh my god if if they would let Kenyans kind of go up here and set up shop in five years Detroit wouldn't have an empty building, and it's not necessarily. But she's also thinking in terms of the structure of Kenya and and the ability to there's no government help, but there's not a lot of government 
impedance or whatever. They don't, they don't, they're out of the way one way or the other. There's no expectation of government salvation, but neither do they interfere. interfere. So they're extremely – and I think this goes for most of the world. We're used to – we're addicted to, to, to government here and in, in the West in general, the, the 30, 40, whatever comprises the Western world, Japan, you know, Australia, Western Europe sort of thing. And you see – I mean my – you know, when my wife was five, six, seven years old, whatever it was, she was going – getting up at 3, 4 in the morning, catching around with the milkmen to go down to the, to the lagoon to buy the small fish that nobody the, – the, the women, the mothers didn't want – Come to bring them back home. Her mother would fry them. She'd sit out in the road and sell fish. I mean, all of that's illegal in, in America. All of that's illegal. None of that could happen here. But she was able to help support her family and pay her school fees at an age when, when we're terrified of letting our child get the mail. I, I mean, so it's, it's a, you know, we're talking to a different society, but it's not inevitable. In other words, I guess my point is it's not inevitable that if a big employer goes or there's a, there's a big economic change in life, that life stops. And in some of the economic, the commercial activity, life has obviously not stopped. But the commercial activity on, say, on Six Mile between Livernois and Wyoming, which I'm very familiar with because I live on Ohio Street there, has stopped apart from the liquor stores and the churches. And there's no good reason for that. It's not like people aren't going on with their life. They are going on with their life. They're doing it somewhere else. Joe, describe the property that you bought. It's it, – the, the property is on the north side of Six Mile. So it's in the Bagley neighborhood. The other side is where I have a parking lot. That used to be the old Larco's restaurant, which you probably remember because you're from the area. There was a fairly famous restaurant. Well, that – the Italians um, – I do. They burnt it I down on the it. way out of town and that's now a parking lot. I, I own that parking lot and that parking lot, this all-on-one deed goes with the, the, the stores that are across the street. It goes from San Juan almost all the way to the corner of Pennington. There's six you know, legal storefronts, six numbers – but it's all on one deed. So you've got a parking lot, which is two lots, and then one big lot, six storefronts. It roughly spans San Juan to Pennington on the north side of Six Mile. I'm bracketed by, you know, liquor store, hardware store. And when did you buy this property? 2015. So you've had it for about four years. Right. What, has, what has happened there since? Not a whole, not a whole lot. I, uh, and, and that's the, 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 the sad part about this and how it, 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 was, a, it was and is a, a learning experience. I... Uh, I've tried to to at the beginning. I I did a few basic things, you know, got a few things done. But the, 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 just to start off with, the buildings were, were stripped. There was there there shells. There were the, you know the the heating units were gone. They were scrapped. The scrappers had gone in there. So the, when they, when they torched the rooftop units off, they they put holes in all the roofs because they just used torches. They cut holes. So then all the roofs flooded, and then you know everything inside gets damaged. So there was office space and, and two or three of them, but it was all moldy, you know, uh, sheetrock, which I, you know, I emptied a couple myself. I got dumpsters. I emptied them myself. I got basic electric put in two. I got a rooftop unit put on one, and then I ran out of money. So since then, I've been looking for, for partners, and I had, you know, one serious thing. We, we, we was a partnership for a year, and I'm you know, still in touch with the guy, but the, he uh, – I guess he kind of lost faith and in, in, uh, he's originally um, – his name is Ken Brown, great guy. He's originally from the south side of Chicago, grew up in, in, in you know, terrible economic conditions and all that. But it was an entrepreneur in his heart from a very young age, even if he never could, could make it happen as it were. And he threw a whole – you know, he's got a life story. He's written books. He's a motivational speaker and all that. He ended up in Detroit at some point and he's always had a desire to have his own restaurant. So we met up. He actually found me through uh, the, the city of Detroit as a program called Motors, Motor City Match and my property was listed on their thing. He was interested. His wife is from the area and he wanted to put his restaurant, which he's always wanted to have, in that area and he saw it. We talked. We got along. We talked for an hour and a half, two hours. We've never had a disagreement and – the problem came to me after a year. The problem is financing. The problem is financing. The way that the system is set up now, it's extremely difficult to do development in small increments to move forward. They want either – the seem to want or either you got a shuttered up building, a boarded up building or something that is completely up to – up to code, up to the, complies with everything, and the difference between boarded up building and that is, in, in my case, depending on who you sp- spoke to, was between a million and three million dollars. Well, well, let me let's back up here for just sure. a moment. Let me ask you some questions about the financing aspect because that's that's important for every business. Uh, did you go to uh, traditional banks? 
for financing? I, I did not. Ken, we, we had an agreement that uh, Ken, who was my partner on this, he wanted to both be put his own restaurant in one of the units and had a was going to had this gone through have a third or 20 30 percent stake in the in of equity because he also wanted to own his own restaurant which i think is is really important for neighborhood stabilities to not have this cycle of of landlord renter landlord renter i i prefer to have i mean my goal still my dream now is to have every unit occupied by a detroit business and if they want equity stakes to 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 make this to make them feel secure that they're you know I'm happy to do that that's what I I want stability I don't it's not I'm not looking for short term profit I'd like to know what's going to be here in 30 years that's how I look at things I have a daughter born in the city here I have two daughters here actually an adult daughter and a young daughter and I'm interested in what is this neighborhood going to look like in 30 years so Ken was very invested his wife comes from I think Eileen Street or, or Burwood whatever not 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 far from the buildings and the his goal was to have a restaurant and also be a, you know be an equity uh, have a stake in the buildings and that's the i forgot what your question was that, well that, my that, that my pro- question was, was basically what what avenues did you right so i left which avenues okay. did you seek funding so we sort commercial of, banks right uh, okay yeah he i he was he's the talker He's the better talker of the two. He's got way more patience and and a much you know much more charming personality than I do. And we agreed he was going to go get. Oh, I don't know how that could possibly be, Joe. I think you're perfectly charming. I'm a bit too frank and direct for a lot of people, especially in financial institutions and in city organizations. But the so he went he went to the banks. The bank said we don't do this. We we have our own standards and all this stuff. He goes he went to Chase and he had he had letters of credit when he had he had the McDonald on. Um, Built the one, I believe, on Eight Mile and Lostra there, and he had another one up in Southfield on Telegraph and Twelve Mile, and he was very, very successful. He got divorced, whatever happened, he had to sell them, but he showed me things and chase him. He had he had paid off it was two or three million dollars of loans in a few years. He was he has a great, great track record. He went to Chase, and Chase told him they said you're a great customer, all that. We don't finance this kind of stuff. If you were building McDonald's, we'd find it. We're not going to finance rehab of buildings from 1935. And one of these buildings is the Winkleman's, one is the Neisner's, one is a, one of the original Sanders. These are old buildings in a neighborhood that if you look on Google Maps, looks like you know a bomb just went off. We're not doing it. You need to go to one of these CDFIs, the Community Development Finance, like the Invest Detroit, Develop Detroit people. The way they put it, we threw money over the fence they are dealing with it now. That they're the people you need to go to. Explain what a CDFI is. I don't exactly know, but in theory, it, I believe it stands for Community Community Development Finance Institution, something like that. And in theory, Thanks. that they will they will take risks. They're more involved or more in touch with the needs of a community, and that they will take risks that are maybe that the, the numbers that traditional banks are simply going to look at the numbers. Aren't that, that won't work? The buildings aren't going to comp. You would know more about this than I would. But. Well, it's an important concept, and I'm glad you brought it up because traditional banks, commercial banks, are retail banks are in the business of making money. They make loans, but the purpose um, for which they make loans is to make money. Uh, a CDFI, its purpose in loaning money is community development. It has. It has a priority beyond making money. In fact, its its purpose is not to make money. It wants to be sustainable, but it it, it wants to help the community. Supposedly, there's a social mission. That's at least the, the the theory there. That there's yeah. That's right. And so so Chase actually gave you this advice that you should go to a CDFI. Chase gave Ken Ken that advice. Ken went Ken Ken went to all the CDFIs. He talked to all of them, everything, and. That one of them, he was a winner. His restaurant concept was a winner at, of, of Motor City Match. And at Motor, Motor City Match event, he was approached by one of the people of, of Invest Detroit saying, we love your idea. You sound great. Everything was good. We want to invest in this. And he said, great. I need investors because I don't have that much of my own money left, you know, whatever, whatever's been going on. So he – we follow. He followed that path. I didn't have anything to do with it, but he did the applications, went to the meetings, and there's a lot of meetings involved. There's more meetings than anything else involved. And at some point, another person from Invest Detroit that I I knew from I've done tree work from I know him from community meetings. I'm I'm around, and so I know the you know the kind of people who circulate there. Said, you know what? There's six, and he was giving me the, the the theories that you know it's really better to develop the whole block. It's not quite a whole block, but it's six of seven storefronts. Rather than doing one in the middle and you've got these empty buildings on either side, it's going to be more successful if we do – I said, 
great, love the idea. I've got no cash. I got a building. There's no debt on the building, but I've got no cash. And Ken doesn't have enough cash. Whatever cash he has going at the restaurant. Don't worry, don't worry. We'll fund this. Okay. So this went on for a year, and at the end of the year, there was no, despite a lot of promises, there was just no funding. The the, the why of it, I don't want to impute a motive to it, but it was we had hard numbers from from seasoned construction professionals of eight hundred thousand dollars would get us new roofs, new facades, new roofs, new facades, and basic basic you know plumbing and heating, so the white box, gray box sort of thing. Eight hundred thousand dollars. By the time the professionals were involved with the the this, you need to do this, you need to do that. They had it up over two million dollars, and. That's apparently where the, where the project fell apart because if you if you're continuing to 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 if you're making that into a two million or three million dollar project, they're right. That building's not going to be able to carry that sort of that's that sort of uh, debt. Let me ask you a question: What accounts for the discrepancy between the eight hundred thousand dollar figure that you came up with and the two million dollar figure that the CDFI came up with? Some of it seems to be pulled out of thin air. Some of it was. Some of it was. They said, "Well, you know, no tenants can afford to to make their own improvements, so you're going to need to to budget money for tenant improvements." TIs. There's half a million dollars there. You need a contingency. We already had a ten percent contingency built in, but they wanted another contingency built in. Then they had their soft costs. So they, it kept going on and on. Then consultants. And so we need another uh, mortgage survey. We already had one, but they want another one. That it added up as fifty here, sixty there. They wanted. They said our general contractor wasn't good enough. They wanted to also have a project manager and do the exact same thing as the general contractor, but they wanted that. Excuse me. They wanted that. They did not want us to market the real estate locally, even though I could fill every one of those spaces immediately if they were done. There are people come to me every week, even when they're in ruins, and say, "I need a space. I need a space." But they, they don't want a space that has no roof or a leaky roof. They want a space they can move into. But they say, no, you need to hire a commercial real estate uh, person. So they're, 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 their fee was 60000 So you add all them up, they were up over $2 million. And then when you get to a certain point, they said, look, you know, at some point, if you make this project a little bit bigger, now you're eligible for some – I don't know what – I don't even know what the acronym was, but MEDC funds essentially. But below a certain threshold, so let's make it even bigger. Let's spend even more money, and now you're eligible for some from the state. So – my my whole objective was to get six local businesses open, and by the time we're done with all these meetings, they were talking about a mega project, which is going to be big for headlines and all that. But it's 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 it it, it was a case that I believe of of you know the, the, the perfect being the enemy of the good. They wanted a and, and they're not the only ones, but they seem to want this perfect big ribbon cutting. Mayor shows up with a giant yellow foam scissors. Everyone cheers. Everyone smiles. Wow, the free press is here, and Stephen Henderson's doing a show, and or nothing. And I was like, why don't we do some incremental? Why don't we start with one storefront, which was our original thing? You guys are pushing us to do this whole strip. We don't want to do the whole strip. I'd rather try one storefront and see what works. If we need to make adjustments, do that. And in other words, do some sort of organic development the way it's done in the whole rest of the world where CDFIs don't exist and where you don't have access to capital. And the thinking that I see these days is that if the kind of People that these these organizations help or people really don't need the help because they prioritize resources over resourcefulness. They're abs- if you have money, you got a seat at the table, and if you don't, you don't. And there are so many local businesses, entrepreneurs, people. I just was approached by a woman. She, she she's had breast cancer, and she wants to sell whatever sort of garments that, that women, all these sorts of things. She says, there's no place to go, literally. And I wasn't aware of that. Obviously, I'm not a woman. Don't have, you know. And she says, I need a spot. I need. I just need a little place, you know. And she doesn't have a place. Where do you sell this stuff? Where do you get together? All these sorts of things that they're, they're not thinking about. They're either number crunching and they're thinking about a development in New Center or Midtown or Downtown or Comerica Park, whatever it is. And they're ignoring because none of them live there. That's a huge problem. None of them live there. And it's not just the investitory. It's all of these people. None of them live in the neighborhoods that they're supposedly developing. So they're out of touch with people to the extent that they're in touch. They hire consultants. You and, know, to- so, and, and so you think that it would be better, as you put it, the, the the perfect is the enemy of the good. It would be better if 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 you could have got eight hundred thousand dollars and started small and started with fifty thousand, without we, all we, the flash. Fifty thousand. We he won Motor City Match, but one of the requirements of Motor City Match, Motor City Match is a great idea, but it's very poorly executed. And the reason why I believe it's poorly executed is because it's run by people who are not 
entrepreneurs. So where, where are you with the property right now? The property right now is, is, is vacant. I am slowly, very slowly working with a local, uh, another local business owner who has a construction company to slowly rehab one unit at a time, but very slowly because, again, it's a, it's a, it's a money problem. There's no, no shortage of, of, of demand. It's the, the, the short, shortage of capital and the reason – because of the – we haven't talked about this you know, phased compliance thing because they, you need a lot of money to get the stamp of approval from the city of Detroit, not just the city of Detroit, from the state of Michigan, from, from – this is you – know, From various sources. From, from all over in the country. Our, our zoning codes and building codes are really, really exclusive. Very, 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 very difficult to comply unless you're already – it favors the wealthy. And I told you, I really, really um, like that term that you coined, phased compliance. Certainly, nobody would argue that building codes that are there to ensure the safety of people in the building, people who use the building, people who are invited into the building, uh, you want to protect those people. But there are other, there are other requirements that every municipality has. Um, some to more or lesser degrees, for example, art requirements. There, there are zoning requirements in some cities that require you to have purely decorative or uh, attractive items, um, elements to your site plan. Landscaping is always covered in the zoning requirements of, of any municipality, how much green space you have to have, what kind of green space buffer zones you have to have between parking lots and the building or, or parking lots and right-of-ways, things like that. So so you are working on doing it your way. You're still pushing ahead with that. Well, I'm, I'm trying to. It's, it's, it's difficult. We, we may end up having to sell the place because the, the, the requirements aren't going away anytime soon, unfortunately. But it, I, it's nice at least to be able to have the conversation about it, and, and we'll, see, we'll, we'll see what happens. But without we're, we're running out of time. I'm sorry to cut you off there, Joe. I, I did want to ask Alan about this, though, because he has um, – Alan – his father um, has a business in Tanzania, isn't that right? That's right, Tanzania, East Africa. Yep. Tell me about it. Well, um, we are also facing the similar challenges that you're talking about here: um, cash flow, investments, regulatory difficulties. Um, I also label it as time bandits. You know, a decision is being put off and a decision is being put off until the decision gets put off again and again, and it just wears you down. And once you're worn out, even if you have the entrepreneurial heart and the wealth to do it, you no longer have the drive and you give up. And so I have seen this in, in many places. Uh, but change starts with us, one person at a time, and I I am very, very fortunate to be sitting here listening to your passion and listening to your ideas, and I think we just keep going. I'm really excited to have been able to talk to both of you today. Joe, Alan, I hope that both of you can come back in the future. Joe, I'd like to see where your project with your commercial property and with Creating Space Detroit is in uh, a few months from now or a year from now. And uh, Alan... I'd like to talk a lot more about risk management, so I'd like to have you back as well. Thank you both for being here. Well, thanks for having Thank me. Thanks, and for thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Revitalize Our Cities Now. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or questions about the show, you can email us at dmichael at lipsonnielsen.com. Make sure you join us again for our next episode when we talk with another difference maker, helping to revitalize our cities now. Now.